Today's scripture is going to be found in Exodus 39. I'll be reading a selection of various verses. There will be a display of artists' rendering of garments that are described in this chapter. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen. They made for the ephod att attaching shoulder pieces joined to it at its two edges. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the breastpiece in skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It was square, and they had set it in four rows of stones. There were 12 stones with their names, according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And they made two gold rings and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. Thus, they attached it in front of the shoulder pieces of the ephod. And they bound the press piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breast piece should not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue. On the hem of the robe, they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe, between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons and the turban of fine linen and the caps of fine linen and the linen undergarments of fine twine linen and the sash of fine twine linen and of blue and purple and scarlet yarn. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied to it a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, well, Exodus 39, what's happening here when we open our Bibles is I want to make sure you understand where we've come, right? So far, uh, Moses has, has uh, overseen the construction of every single part of this tabernacle, right? This is where God's going to come and dwell. 
He's done all the curtains. He's done the poles. He's, he's done little fasteners. He's, he's done all the detailed, intricate embroidery work. They've done all the carving of gold and these instruments and sacred objects that are go inside of the, of the Holy of Holies itself and, and then in the courtyard. And this is where uh, they will go and minister before the Lord. This is where sacrifices will be offered. Now it's ready to be constructed, but we're missing one thing. We're missing a man. We're missing what we know in Scripture as the high priest. This is the one who will go before the Lord. This is the one who can stand and make the sacrifices, who once a year will go into the presence of God on the Day of Atonement to offer sins and to make offering and prayers before God for the people of Israel. And so, so if you're looking, we say, okay, who, who's qualified to do this? Who in the world can stand before God? Now, you know, if you've been following through and listening to this, you know that is not an easy question to answer in the sense that you can't just look around and go, oh yeah, there's the guy, right? He qualifies. He's, he's the one who is perfectly suited to be in God's presence and do what he wants to do. And so, so we're, we're, we're faced with this, the, the, what we're trying to find in this holy man. In fact, over in Psalm 15, I've read this passage to you before, but listen to this. David is essentially asking the question, who's qualified to be the high priest? Who's qualified to go and minister in the tent of God? So Psalm 15 says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and doesn't slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor and takes up a, repro- uh, takes up a reproach against his friend and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own herd, and does, not, does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the one who qualifies. What, what is David saying? Who can qualify to go before God? And the answer, in a word, is someone who is holy, someone who is blameless, and the way David describes it, blameless inside and out. Who in the world can do this? And so when we come to Exodus, you'd be thinking, okay, well, I, I don't know who's qualified to do this. But what we discovered is it's a guy named Aaron. If you look at verse one, these clothes are going to be made for Aaron. Now let's talk about Aaron just for a second. Who is Aaron? If you go all the way back to the beginning of Exodus, God comes to, Mo- to Moses and says, man, I want you to go and say these things to Pharaoh. And he says, I can't, right? I, I, I stutter, you know, gives him all these excuses. Finally, God says, okay, then here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna be like God to Pharaoh and Aaron will serve as your mouthpiece as your high priest. So Aaron is the one who speaks the words of God through Moses and, and finally to, to Pharaoh. That's him, right? He's he's Moses' brother. I mean, there's there's this great lineage. That's Aaron. And yet, he's also the Aaron of Exodus 32. He's the Aaron, the same one who who listened and capitulated to the will of the people to make a golden calf. He's the one who devised the plan for doing that. He's the one, it says, who carved the golden calf with his own hand. He's the one who set it before the people and says, this is your God in violation of the first two commandments. He's the one who led Israel into this egregious sin. He's the one that when Moses came and confronted him, he lied to him and told him a different story than we read about in Exodus 32. He's the one who blames the people and shifts all of it to them. This same Aaron, this same Aaron is the one who's now going to become the high priest. Now, how does that happen? How can God do that? 
Uh, Phil Riken commenting on this passage says, Aaron was able to serve because although he was fallen, he was also forgiven. Somebody has said that um, God doesn't call the qualified, God qualifies the called. I think that's a great way of looking at this, right? That is that he does some things to qualify Aaron for this service. He, he says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to change you and I'm going to help you and you're going to be, I'm going to be the one who, in fact, in fact, what Aaron's going to have to do, we're going to find out, is he's going to have to go wash at the wash basin. He's going to have to make a sacrifice for himself. He's going to have to go through these things that essentially put him in right standing before God. Paul, Paul's going to say it, like this, sinful people in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? No, no unrighteous person can stand before God in his kingdom. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, God so utterly changed you through Jesus Christ. You, you are not those. Those are things are not your identity anymore. You have this new identity. This is exactly what God is doing for Aaron here in Exodus 39. You're gonna be washed. You're gonna be sanctified. You're justified. You're gonna be able to stand before God because of what I do for you. I'm going to qualify you. You're not qualified now, Aaron, but you will be when I'm through with you. It's amazing. Now, now, how does he do this? And I want you to see in this passage, I want to show you two things. Uh, that's all this morning, uh, but they have a lot of subpoints. So <laughs> two things, all right? First thing I want you to notice is he gives him new clothes. In fact, that's what this is all about. Look at verse one uh, of Exodus 39. It says, from blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as Lord had commanded. Now, they describe the, the, the new holy garments that he gives. God, if you will, gives him new clothes. That's what this whole chapter is about. Now, I want you to notice something. I want to put a, two little side-by-side -side graphics up here uh, so you can see this uh, together because I think the artist got it right. Once you see his garments, go ahead and put that up, and, and the tabernacle. Now, if I showed you the whole, the whole courtyard and everything, you'd see similarities there. If you, if you notice, they kind of match, don't they? Right? In fact, they don't just match in color, which is what the Bible says. They also match in, in fabric, Remember last week, if you were here, we talked about that there's this obvious way into the presence of God. You don't jump the fence. You don't dig under. There is a, there's a way through the courtyard. Then there's a way into the holy place, that first room. Then there's a way into the holy of holies. Now look at the priest. It's like he's part of the tabernacle. It's like he's woven out of the same fabric, right? That's exactly the idea that you're supposed to see that somehow there's sort of this, not just color coordination, it's almost like he becomes part and parcel of the tabernacle himself. And this is, this is a, there's all kinds of meaning here, right? That is that there's one way in and part of your way into the presence of God is there's a priest, you've got to go through him. And that's what your whole Bible's gonna tell you. 
We don't just march into the presence of God. There's one who goes before us. There's one who is like the tabernacle. There's one who's qualified to walk in. God gives him new clothes, okay? So now what I want you to see is that each part of this clothing preaches a a message and we could literally walk through each part. I wanna give you three of those parts this morning just so you kind of get an idea of what's going on and leave you to go back and look and say, man, how does this garment preach the message that that we know from scripture? But the first thing he's talks about is the linen ephod. See that, see that vest that goes over the top of him? I'm not talking about the little breastplate there, but the vest underneath with the sash on it. This is called in scripture, the linen ephod. And by the way, you're going to notice if you read scripture that over and over it's referred to, and it's almost like when the linen ephod is referred to, they're referring to the priestly role. It's, they, they become almost synonymous with one another. So Aaron wears the linen ephod. Uh, you're going to read about uh, Gideon wearing one. You're going to read about the wicked priest that they end up sort of hiring. He's kind of a mercenary priest because he wears the linen ephod. Little Samuel as a child wears the linen ephod. Uh, David wears the linen ephod over and over again. This is, this is the, the, uh, the symbol of the priesthood. Um, but what's so important about it, there's lots we could say, the colors, all that kind of stuff, but look up on the shoulders. The most important part of this are what appear on the shoulders. Look at verse six. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder piece of the ephod to be the stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded. What's happening? Up on these, on the, on these shoulders, they, they put a stone and there's six tribes of Israel engraved on that one and six tribes of Israel engraved on this one. What's, what's the idea there that God, that the priest carries the people on his shoulders? This is actually how the Bible talks. He carries them, he bears them and wherever he goes, they're with him. They're, he's there when, they sac- when he sacrifices. They are there when he puts out the showbread. They're there when he trims the lantern. They're there in all the priestly service. He's the one who bears them up and brings them before the presence of God. This is how we understand Jesus. Jesus is the one who does this, right? We go into the presence of God on the shoulders of Jesus. He bore the burden of our sin. He walked. He's the one who's qualified to go before him. That's that's the linen ephod. The second piece you're going to see is the, is the breast piece. Keep reading in verse 8. And he made the breast piece and skilled work in the style of an ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It was square. They made the breast piece doubled. It spanned its, uh, a span its length, a span its breadth when doubled. Go down to verse um, 14. There were 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. See, what it's, see how it's like there? He's got, he's got this, this square piece. By the way, it's folded, and, and we know from earlier that, that that's where inside, there was almost a pocket on the side. That's where they had something called the Urim and the Thummim. These were like sacred dice that actually helped them understand the will of God, judgment of God over different things. That's where they, were, they sat there in his pocket. And on there are stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So if he bears the burden of Israel on his shoulders, he bears concern for Israel at his breast. That's the idea. Where do we carry children? Well, we can, right? We can put them on our shoulders. But, but, but when your child needs comfort, your child needs care, we don't throw them on our shoulders, do we? There you go, buddy, right? Most often, we grab them and pull them to our, our chest. I care about you. That's the whole idea. 
That God's saying, I'm gonna, I, I, I don't just carry you, I, I, I care for you. That's the idea behind why it's there. And I'm caring for all of the tribes of Israel. These are my people, these symbols. Then the last thing we get to is the turban. Okay, and we read about this in verse uh, 27 and 28, right? He made these coats of woven fine linen, verse 28, and the turban of fine linen, linen caps of fine linen. So he, he puts this on his head. Here's all I want you to see. From head to toe, and there's more we can say. From head to toe, he is clothed, right? He is clothed, if you will, in holiness. This is, this is how he's dressed. Um, he's different, isn't it? Like nobody else in Israel would have looked like this. There'd be something unique. He'd be set apart. Something about the way he carried himself, something about the way he looked, right? We could go, there's lots of lessons in here that he is a unique person as he walks and his people see him ministering before the Lord. Um, go back to Exodus chapter 28 just for a second and look at verses two and three and, and, and we sort of get the why behind all of this. In Exodus 28, it says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill. They may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for priesthood. It's for glory. It's for beauty. Consecration means holiness, right? These new clothes will be part of me making him holy. This is how he's going to do it. So it's glory. It's beauty. It's consecration, holiness. Now, David Levy He's commenting on this passage and he says, his garments were to be holy because they were set apart to be worn only during the service in the tabernacle. They were to be glorious because they exalted the priestly office in the eyes of the people. They were to be beautiful because their colors harmonized with the tabernacle furnishings. The look of the priest was to match the function of his ministry as he worshiped God in the beauty of holiness. That's the idea. That's, a, that's how we're told. We're supposed to worship God in this way, in the beauty of holiness. The reason Aaron is qualified is that God gave him new clothes. This is how he's qualified. Now you're going to read in scripture, we are clothed in his righteousness alone, right? This is how we're talked about, we're, we're taught that this is what God has done for us. He's given us new clothing. Now, why does he give him new clothing? Or, 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 or what's the result of that, we might say? And the result is he gives him a new identity. Look at verse 30. He says, they made the plate of the holy crown. So on the turban, wrote an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied it. And so right there on his forehead, as he walks into God's presence, is this statement of holiness. Now, this is very interesting, right? In other words, uh, there stands Aaron, and in some ways, the holiness is a legal declaration of what he's done. He's now, got, by the time this, the, the, the tabernacle is functioning, he's going to go to the water and clean. He's going to go make sacrifices for himself. He's going to make sacrifices for Israel. And now he can wear this turban that on it, it says, you are holy, holy to the Lord. Like if I, if I go to court, right, and I'm guilty of something, but for whatever reason, the judge decides, hey, you're not guilty, and he writes, and that's the court order. Whether I'm guilty or not, it doesn't matter anymore in this sense. I might still be guilty, but there is a legal declaration over my head that says you are innocent. You are not guilty, and you can never be tried for that again. Here, here's Aaron with this declaration. Why? Why can he wear this declaration? Is he perfect? Well, we're going to talk about that in a moment. 
but he's, he's had a sacrifice made in his place, right? He's been made holy by something else. We've been saying this all along. So now, right, he can, as we sing, we, he, he, can, he can be clothed in righteousness. He can stand faultless before the throne because of what's been done for him. Now, Aaron and the Christian stand holy before God because a sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice was made in our place. I hope you're starting to make these connections, right? This is how it's working. This is what's happening there in the priesthood. This is what gives us standing. He's not saying, man, I'm going in there under my own merit. I don't go in there and go, you know, I've been, my good outweighed my bad. This is why I'm qualified. Doesn't matter. Perfection is what's required. How do we get there? That's what Paul and the writers of Scripture labor and labor to tell us. So Paul's going to say, Paul, in fact, in in Philippians chapter 3, he's going to start laying out like, let me give you my spiritual resume, man. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day as to law. I was perfect, man. I, I was a persecutor of people who went against. I, I kept all the law. I did everything I was supposed to do. And then he says this, chapter 3, verse 7 of Philippians, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Right, that's the surpassing worth, he says he's going. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You hear what he's saying? I, I, I can't take my resume to God. I, I, I did everything the way I thought I was supposed to do it. I was living a righteous life. I was living this, this perfectly law-abiding life that I was supposed to, and none of that made me righteous. In fact, I count all that as rubbish. All that's trash for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All of that, I would have gained no righteousness in God's eyes. What I had to be is, is to be made righteous by a holy declaration that because you put your faith in Jesus, you now have his righteousness imputed to you. This is why Paul's gonna say in 1 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become, look at this, slightly righteous, a little bit righteous, kind of righteous, no, the righteousness of God, perfect. What's the righteousness of God? Totally holy, perfectly holy. Now, Last week, we, we were talking about sacrifices, and I asked the question, do these sacrifices, are they actually effective? Do they take away sins? And the answer was yes and no, because uh, we, we know that God passed over former sins. He was saying, hey, I'm gonna accept these for now as a placeholder for what's to come. But we also hear no, because the blood of bulls and goats don't take away sin. We know that. They're looking for something future. Okay, well, let's ask this. Do these garments, does this new, you know, does this declaration make him actually holy? Is he, is he really holy? Well, the answer again is yes and no. That's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I just want to talk to you about holiness. And I, I want you to understand there's a couple, and I'm, I'm going to really just talk about two, if we have time, I might mention another at the end, but I, I want you to, I, I, I want to just mention two. There's two kinds of holiness that the Bible's going to talk about. I'm going to, they're both going to start with P just so you can kind of remember these. Okay, the first one I want you to hear about is what we'll call positional 
holiness. Positional holiness is simply this. Again, you have this legal standing. There's been a declaration made over your life that you may be actually guilty of sin. In fact, you are actually guilty of sin, but there's a declaration over your life that says you are holy. Why? Because your sins have been paid by another. You have now been clothed in righteousness alone. You are faultless to stand before the throne because something has been done for you. Right? This is what happens. There is this positional. This is Philippians chapter 3. This is why I stand where I stand. I am positionally holy. I'm clothed by Christ, in Christ by faith. And by the way, this explains what I quoted to you earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right? Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified by, by, by Christ, by the Spirit of Christ. Because of what he's done, this is why you are legally in this position. If you've put your faith in Jesus... The righteousness of God has been imputed to you. Your sinfulness imputed to Christ, he put on the cross, sacrificed this. The wages of your sin have all been paid for. You now stand perfectly holy in Christ. Listen, that ought to be a great comfort. It ought to be a great comfort to all of us who find ourselves struggling with sin that you understand God could not love you more, Christian, than he loves you right now. God does not look at you and say, I'm waiting. Like, look, how, how, what kind of monster of a dad would it be? Is like, like, I'll love you as soon as you improve. As soon as you, man, as a father, right? Father's Day here, we look at our children and by God's grace, we say, man, I love you right now. Are there things I want you to get past? Of course there are. But it can't make me love you more or less. Well, now extrapolate that, right? The greatest father in the world is a micron from the worst father in the world when I'm compared to God, right? He is infinitely better, infinitely more loving, and I love you perfectly. And my love for you, in some sense we can say, never grows. God's love for us never grows. It's always, I love you right now, exactly who you are. Now, here's the interesting. <laughs> I love you too much to leave you there. So, so what happens is we've got this positional holiness that should then work its way out of our lives into what, let's give it another P beginning that says practical holiness, right? That, that's the other thing, that, that, that the idea behind having these new clothes and, and being clothed in righteousness, right? I can stand faultless positionally before God. That ought to result in different behavior, in working itself out practically in my life. Do you understand that we are called to be holy? Over and over in Scripture, God's going to say, be holy, people, the ones who belong to me, even as I am holy. So, so yes, we are positionally, that's what makes us holy, but he calls us that we would be practically holy. In fact, the writer of Hebrews the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter uh, 12 and, 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 and verse 14 says, look at this, strive for peace with everyone. That's a whole sermon in itself, right? Strive, right? This is energy. This takes work. This is hard work, right? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let me make sure you understand the difference. Positional holiness, no striving. You're there right now. If you are in Christ, you don't have to work one bit practical holiness. 
We strive for it. And he says, in fact, if we're not striving for it, if we're not, if we're not headed that way, you won't see the Lord. That's, so, so in other words, um, the Bible's gonna say this, here's who you are, you're holy, now act like it. Right, now, now, now become who you are. That's scripture. Over and over, right, Paul. I'm gonna describe who you are in Christ. I'm gonna describe now, what are the ethical implications? What are the behavioral implications? Now, become who you claim to be, right? If not, if, if you're not becoming, if there's no impulse to become, to strive, then, then well, you, you may not see the Lord. In fact, if, that's, if it's not there at all, you, you have reason to question whether, whether um, you're actually saved. This is the fruit of righteousness. This is how it bears out in our lives. So, so what is holiness? What, what is practical holiness? Last summer, uh, Michelle and I were on a little break and uh, for whatever reason, I was sitting alone and reading and some stuff and I just, I just, I, I was praying just about my life and, and I started thinking about this idea of holiness and, and uh, I thought, man, I really need to read, uh, I need to read more on that and um, it's not because I thought you were all a bunch of sinners. It was really, really about me, honestly. It was about me and my own holiness. And I was wanting to think about that. And, and, and I, uh, I'm ashamed to tell you this. Like I came across a book that I feel like I should have read, you know, 40 years ago um, by a man named J.C. Ryle, R-Y-L-E. And the name of the book is, you guessed it, Holiness, just Holiness. And um, it's one of the most profound books I've read. And I, when I say profound, don't think hard. Uh, in fact, I've been leading a, a men's group over the last several months and we've read several books and this is one of the books. I was so blown away by this book. I've, I, I've read it twice before and I, I, I set it in front of these guys like this is one of the books we're gonna read and I'll just tell you like in sort of my anecdotal survey of that group, if I ask them what's been your favorite book so far, uh, almost to a person, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. So I'm telling you all this because uh, for two reasons. Number one, I hope to whet your appetite to go buy that book. Not, I don't get, get a commission. He's dead. He wrote the book in 1877. Um, it feels like it was written yesterday. The other reason I'm telling you that is because basically the rest of this sermon is J.C. Ryle, okay? Uh, I, I, wanna, I, want you, I, wanna, I want you to see how he unpacks holiness, and, and try to help explain this, okay? I, I don't think it needs a lot of explanation, but I want you to see this. I think this is profound. I think what he's getting at is what is, what is positional holiness, but what, how does that work its way out practically? What does practical holiness look like? And so let me, let me give you six things, and there's far more that he said. It's a whole book. Let me give you six things that, uh, that J.C. Ryle gives us as here are the signs of practical holiness in the life of a believer in Jesus who is positionally holy, okay? Number one, there's a habit of being, has a habit, a holy person has a habit of being one mind with God. That is that you agree with God's judgment wherever God has given his judgment, that means you love what he loves, you hate what he hates. Now that's challenging, isn't it? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what he hates? Or have you set aside certain categories and certain sins and certain things that we're commanded to do and say, yeah, that's for other people, but here's where I stand. A holy person without which you will not see the Lord, the one who is striving for that kind of holiness is somebody who agrees with God's judgment. You accept God's assessment of things. 
If God says X, you believe X. If he says Y, you believe Y. You have a mind with Christ that says, man, if I don't, I want to believe that way. Uh, God, help me, right? That's, that's a holy person. In fact, Ryle says it this way. He who most entirely agrees with God, he is the most holy man, the most holy woman. Do you do you approve of what God approves of? Do you disapprove of what God disapproves of? Do you know that's a requirement of you? Paul in Romans 1 is going to start going the wrath of God. I mean, after talking about how the gospel has come and I'm not ashamed of the gospel and man, it's the, it's the righteousness of God. This is how we get it. He's, he goes on to say, but the, the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What God has said, they suppress it down. Then he goes on to unpack what that looks like. And toward the end of Romans 1, he says, now, there's all these people, right? Men, men lusting after men, women lusting after women, sexual immorality, all these things. And says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of righteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then he says this, those, though they know God's righteous decree, they know that God has said this is right, this is wrong, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. See, it's no, it's no excuse to say, I don't do this sin, right? But hey, that's your business. I'm not saying you gotta be in everybody's face. I'm saying, but you don't give approval to it. You don't give approval to what the Bible calls sin, ever. You're one mind with God. That's the first thing. Second thing, a holy person will endeavor to shun every known sin and keep every known commandment. Okay, just think of it this way. It's a mind that is bent toward God and his will. It's the one who with Paul says, man, I, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, right? That's where my heart is. I want to be faithful. I am more fearful of displeasing God than I am of displeasing another person or displeasing the culture or the world around us that would say, I hate what you do. No, I, I really want to endeavor to, to shun every known sin, to keep every known commandment. Are you holy? Is that you? Number three, a holy person will strive to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You're saying, man, I want to be conformed to his image with Paul. Oh, that I may know him. I want to know Jesus. I want to be like Jesus, right? I want to be conformed to him. He's forgiving. He's unselfish. He's loving. He's humble. He's incredibly generous. He's faithful. He's sacrificial. He's compassionate, just, kind, uncompromising. That's how I want to be. I want to be like my Savior. Ryle says this, happy is he who has learned to make Christ his all, both for salvation and example. Much time would be saved and much sin prevented if men would often or ask themselves the question, what would Christ have said and done if he were in my place? Look, okay, yeah, you got the WWJD bracelet. Do you ever ask the question? Do you ever actually confront something and say, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus feel? Man, I want to conform myself to that. Do you... 
Do you seek to be like the Lord Jesus Christ? Number four, a holy person will follow after moderation and self-denial. This is a convicting one. We're told to put to death the deeds of flesh. Of course we are. Crucify lusts. Do you live a life of moderation and self-denial? Look, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot, there's a lot of justification that goes on out there. Right? In my own heart, it's okay, right? I can, I can give in. These are not sinful. I just don't do them in moderation. I'm not seeking to live a self-disciplined life. There's some people that would, would, would rationalize all kinds of things. They would say, look, if I have a physical desire, if there is a physical craving, I should give in to that because if I don't, it could actually cause mental illness. I mean, that's how our culture talks. And the Bible's gonna say, no, no, no. There's things you must deny. There are things you must walk away from. But, but listen, I think it's bigger than this. When's the last time you denied yourself something you shouldn't watch or denied yourself something maybe I'm eating too much or maybe I'm sleeping too much or maybe I'm drinking too much or whatever? Have you ever, do you stop and just go, whoa? Moderation. Paul, Paul says, remember this? I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Are you disciplined, Christian? So I, I don't think Paul right here is talking about, I practice the spiritual disciplines. Those are all great. I don't think he's talking about fasting or prayer or whatever. That, I think he's saying, man, I, I, I physically discipline my body. I physically am careful about what I listen to and watch and eat and all these things because this is what Christ has called us to. This is practical holiness. I'm positionally holy. But it's now working its way out in practical holiness. Number five, a holy person will follow after a spirit of mercy and benevolence toward others. I love how Ryle says this. He basically says something to the effect of, of um, you're not content. A holy person won't be content with doing no harm. What, what they want to do is try and do good. Right? It's, not, it's not just a position of passivity. Well, I'm just not going to do harm. No, it's activity. I'm, I'm going to try to be actively useful. I'm going to try to, you know, if there's sins that should be confronted, I, I want to help confront those. If there's injustices that should be done, it's not that you're, you're not engaged in the injustice. No, you're, you're actually trying to be on the front lines of saying, I, I, I want this world to be a better place. It, it, it's, I, 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 I want, I want to, to follow after a spirit of mercy and benevolence especially toward others within the body of Christ. Number six, a holy person will follow after faithfulness in all duties and relations of life. I think what he's saying here is the Christian isn't content with average. Now hear me, let's talk about school just for a second. Let's say, man, I try so hard and I get C's. You're not average, you're exceptional. And I'm not saying that to boost your ego. I'm saying you've tried really hard. It's not about grades. It's not about, you know, I make this much. It's about, it's man, I, I'm, I, I, I'm not content with just sort of resting. No, I, I want to do better. And you know why a Christian wants to do better? Because a Christian has higher motives, 
right? We're working for something greater and we, we recognize we have a better help than those without Christ. We claim to have the spirit of God living within us. Christian, we should do better. We should be striving harder. I mean, Jesus is gonna say, Paul's gonna say, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Do you work heartily? Can you look at your work and say, man, I work hard. I work hard in my family. I work hard at the office. I work hard at the factory. I work hard in my business. I'm a hardworking mom. I'm a hardworking dad. Whatever I do, I work heartily. You aim to do everything well. You're not lazy. Listen, our bosses, Christian, should want a hundred more of us because we're the best they've got. We, we try hard. Rao says this, a holy man, should, woman should strive to be good husbands and good wives, good parents, good children, good masters, good servants, good neighbors, good friends, good subjects, good in private, good in public, good in the place of business, good by their fireside. Holiness is worth little indeed if it does not bear this kind of fruit. The Lord Jesus puts a searching question to his people when he says, what more are you doing than others? This is practical holiness. This is, I know I'm positionally holy, but I am doing, I was like, are we doing anything more? Is there any difference between us and the world? See this? Th this is what we're called to be, Christian. Now, now listen. <laughs> There's more than six things Rao gives and all I needed to do is put six and all of us in here probably feel like I'm failing. Like I'm, I, I mean, I, I see as you walk through this, Chris, and whatever, I, 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 this feels impossible. Who can ever live like this? And so you maybe feel discouraged. I don't want one person walking out of here discouraged. Here's what I want you to hear. Do you understand that in this striving, let's, let's make sure we understand some things. In all of our striving toward holiness, we will never get rid of what, the, what, what we understand to be something called indwelling or remaining sin. I am going to struggle with sin the rest of my life. I'm never gonna reach and attain some sort of place of perfection. I'm just not this side of head, heading for heaven. But I'm not, that's not going to happen. We carry around in us, Paul says, the body of death, right? I do the things I don't wanna do. I don't do the things I should do. Who's gonna rescue me from this body of death? But Paul in the same passage says, I hate that I don't do this. I hate that I do that. That's the difference. You may be struggling with those. A holy person hates the struggle. A holy person hates the sin. They're never at peace with sin. They never shake hands with the sins that Jesus Christ came to die for, ever. We never just say things like, that's, that's who I am, right? It's just, that's just me. Christian, never. We're grieved by it. We fight with it. We war over it in our own flesh. I was just talking to somebody this last week. How are you doing? Life is good. I mean, I really can't complain. And then he said this. I think if I have a complaint, I think if I have a problem, I'm just basically so sick of my own sin. I'm like, man, that's, isn't that the testimony of a lot of people? You know what? I got a great job. There's money in my bank. I got a roof over my head, gas in the car, as expensive as it is, right? All's going well. I'm so sick of my sin. That's the cry of a holy man. 
That's the cry of somebody who's striving like that. Now, some may say, well, wait a second. The Bible, Isaiah 64 is going to say things like, you know, all my righteousness are but filthy rags. So, so, so Chris, I mean, I thought, I thought any of my attempts at righteousness is just filthy. It's just stupid. It's, it doesn't get us anywhere. That is not what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah isn't saying every attempt, every striving after holiness is worthless. He's not saying that. He's talking about external righteousness, that that if I'm trying to do some sort of obedience that I think externally, the law is going to make me righteous, me trying to make myself perfect before God, he's saying, man, that's never gonna fly. A, A kind of external attempt at righteousness that is separated, that is has no your it's disconnected from your heart, that's worthless. That's just God, are you, are you impressed with you know, these sort of motions that I go through? Not at all. I'm calling you inwardly to be holy. Filthy rags is a heart disconnected from obedience. Kevin DeYoung in his book on holiness says this. He says, sometimes people are careless and speak disparagingly of all human righteousness as if there was no such thing that pleased God. They often cite Isaiah 64, which says our righteousness is fil- as filthy rags. It is true, glorious true, that none of God's people before or after the cross would be accepted by an immaculately holy God if the perfect righteousness of Christ were not imputed to us. That's positional holiness. That's how you get it. But that does not mean that God does not produce in those justified people before and after the cross an experiential righteousness that is not filthy rags. In fact, he does. And this righteousness is precious to God and it is required not as the ground of our justification, which is the righteousness of Christ only, but as an evidence of our being truly justified children of God. Do you hear that? The evidence of your positional holiness is practical holiness. Let me say it this way. I'm not, I don't, I'm not thinking of anybody. I hope you know this. Like, if you look at your life and say, man, I, 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 I'm staking my claims on positional holiness. I, I made some sort of profession of faith, but there is, there is no outworking of that holiness in my life. You have a reason to question whether you're a Christian. You may not be what you think you are. See, see we should see real holiness in our life. Holiness is not a myth. Holiness isn't a superpower, right? Like there's not, it's impossible. No, you should actually see it like the sun. You should see it like the wind. You should feel it like salt. You should taste it like perfume. You should smell it in some ways. I mean, this is how the Bible uses these metaphors. It's visible, it's seen, it's known, it's felt. Like new clothing, Paul's gonna say, we put it on. We put off the old man. We put on this new clothing. Let me let Ryle have the last word. He says, gold is not the less gold because it is mingled with alloy, nor light the less light because faint and dim, nor grace the less grace because young and weak. That's such good news. But after every allowance, I cannot see how any man deserves to be called holy who willfully allows himself in sins and is not humbled and ashamed because of them. I dare not call anyone holy who makes a habit of willfully neglecting known duties and willfully doing what he knows God has commanded him not to do. Well, says John Owen, 
I do not understand how a man can be a true believer for whom sin is not the greatest burden, sorrow, and trouble. Is sin a burden to you? Is it a sorrow? Is it a trouble to you? Listen, I know this sounds strange to say. If it is, praise God. Praise God. That's a sign of life in you. That's a sign of God saying, I love you. Like you're mine. And you know why you feel this way? You know why you feel shame? You know why you feel trouble? You know why you feel conviction? By the way, these are all things that, that, that the world wants to, wants to take away from us. You shouldn't feel any shame. You shouldn't feel any guilt. You shouldn't feel any of this. Listen, I get it. We don't want to just be shaming ourselves when we know we're positionally holy. But there are things that we look at and say, I know this is wrong. I should feel really bad about this. And if I do, that's a grace. Do you understand that? That's mercy. That's God saying, I don't want you there. I'm trying to help you out of this. I'm grieving your soul, right? I'm bringing you to a repentance that will lead you to life. How can we ever be in God's presence? Because through the sacrifice of another, through our cleansing and washing with the water of the word, we are, we are made holy, we are given new clothes, we can say it that way, and we are given a brand new identity. And now the Lord calls us, now, now be who you are. Now live like that's true. Holy to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Thank you, thank you for your word and thank you that because of Jesus there are those in this room, Lord, we struggle, we're, we're, we're frustrated by sin. So often our, our practical holiness feels like it's coming so slow. Sometimes we fail, sometimes we, we're overcome it feels like by sin. But God, if we are in Christ, then Lord, I thank you, Romans 8 is true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I praise you for that. Comfort our hearts with that, even as we wrestle daily, moment by moment, with our own sinfulness. But God, um, there's, there's those of us who in this room are, are struggling presently. People have walked into this room struggling presently with sins. And Lord, I, I pray, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because Christ is in them, the hope of glory, that, Lord, this would be something that incrementally, day by day, they would see freedom from that sin. They would walk in holiness. There are some that say, man, I, I've sort of sided with the world when it comes to certain things. I give approval to things that the world approves of but God disapproves of. Father, check our hearts, rebuke our spirits and help us, Lord, to line our hearts and affections up with you that we'd be one mind with God. Lord, help us to walk in discipline. And Lord, let us also realize at the end of the day with all the striving, we will never reach perfect holiness this side of heaven. But thank you Oh God, thank you that someday someday all that striving will go away. We won't have sinful desires anymore because of Jesus. We'll be in your presence. 
never to struggle with those things again. God, help us to lay hold of that promise. God, I pray. I pray for those who are here and say, man, I'm, I'm not even in any of this. But today would be a day that they realize that they cannot merit their way. They cannot be holy enough on their own. There must be a foreign holiness that is imputed to them in Christ by faith. And so may today be a faith where, a day where faith rises in their hearts and they put their faith, they turn from their sin, even their attempts to try and please you on their own merit and turn to Jesus Christ to find forgiveness, to find mercy, to find grace and to conform them to the image of your son. God, we love you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen.